Welcome to the Contino Podcast, the place for conversations about digital transformation. In this episode, we sit down for a quick chat all about chat, GPT, and generative AI. Why has it got everyone talking? What are the implications and risks? And should businesses be diving right in? We hear from two of Contino's subject matter experts, AI and ML practice lead Byron Allen and senior consultant Jeff Nightingale. Enjoy the episode and to learn more about how your organization can harness modern AI tools, email hello at contino.io. So Byron, everyone is talking about generative AI. Could you explain what exactly generative AI is? So generative AI is distinctly different than machine learning that's come before it in that it's understood, it's learned patterns to create information. So I guess it's always input-output, but the idea is that this is learned to create something new, something that's different. So for example, if you put in uh, a prompt, you can get out an image if it's an image-based uh, generative AI model. Uh, so the idea is that you're creating that new content that hasn't existed before. So that's why you see it kind of uh, initially being used in more of a creative capacity. And how long has this been around? Why does it feel so new now? But it's, it's not that new, right? Um, it is actually relatively new. Uh, so there's a architecture called Transformers which has helped kind of unlock the capability. And not by itself, there's other factors that have come into play, but that's a huge part. And that only came about in, the, in 2017. Uh, so since 2017, basically researchers have taken that architecture and reused it and reused it to kind of build up this capability. And you're finally seeing it now in the mainstream because I would say largely because of OpenAI and ChatGPT, and the marketing and the push around that. But we'd, we'd seen it before, you know, as practitioners. I remember hearing about GPT-2 three, four years ago. Uh, so it has been around for a bit, but in the grand scheme of things, not that long. So why has it struck the public consciousness so much in the last well year, really? I mean, it's even March with ChatGPT-4, right? That's the, the fourth version of it. And that's what really hit the headlines. It's like a quarter of people have now used it. Is it just a marketing campaign or is there suddenly people are seeing practical applications for it? Why, why is it? I think the distinguishing difference now is, so if you take GPT-2, uh, which was several years ago, if you looked at what it could create, what it could generate, the text output was somewhat convincing. It sounded very human, but it was also clearly a bunch of nonsense. Whatever you put in, whilst it sounded convincing and compelling, it was so far from the truth that it was quite literally, it was far-fetched. Uh, so in that sense, you know, interesting, not that useful, and, and in that way, not as compelling. It's become very compelling because it not only is when you give it a prompt, the output is more contextually accurate and it's very convincing in terms of how it's presented. It feels like a human. It feels coherent. And um, that's a big difference. I think accessibility has like played a big factor as well, like in terms of... A lot of the open AI sort of products have really slick like user interfaces. It's made it a lot more accessible for the everyday people to sort of like use these these tools. Um, yeah. So like my mum could use chat GPT, you know, using GPT 3.5 or whatever. Whereas, you know, GPT 2, like she couldn't really use that unless she, you know, knew some, well, like had some technical skills. So I think that's really sort of opened yeah. it up to 
to the mainstream. I think uh, these companies putting it behind a chat interface, really, to your point, shouldn't be missed. In addition to it being accessible, it is very useful to kind of stitch it into a chat application because you can do other things behind that chat application to further assist the experience and make it even more compelling. Is this like a new language that we're getting used to? Much the same way as when we first had search, we had to learn a certain way of asking. How much of that work do users still have to do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... I think it's quite intuitive. The results you get back and the quality of those results is only as good as the questions you ask, which is probably true for like human communication and how we communicate. You know, if I ask you something very vague, I'll probably get like a a vague answer versus if, you know, I ask a question with very sort of detailed requirements. Um, And that's the same with, you know, the current sort of generation of large language models. I mean, I guess the the technical term for it is prompting, isn't it? Or prompt engineering. Like how do you sort of construct and design your question or, or your query to the to the large language model in such a way that you're going to get the best sort of result back. Oh, it's probably too too technical, but essentially, like you're trying to find like a good like prior probability distribution within the model itself. So you're basically trying to find like the latent space within the model that kind of has the information that's sort of most aligned with what you want to like generate a good response. So explain large language models to me. What does that mean for? To the average Joe? A language model is essentially, um, it's like a statistical model. You're going to give it like a, a sequence of information. So let's just say words, like a sentence. And it's going to try and predict the next uh, word, like in this sentence. And it's going to feed that back into itself and try and predict the next word, which is essentially all that ChatGPT is doing. It's just trying to predict. It's trying to complete documents. It's trying to predict the next word. So like if I said, knock, knock, what would you say, Byron? I'd say who's there. Get out. Go away. Like, yeah, 10, 10% probability of that, 90% probability of who's there. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what these models are doing is like they have a probability associated with the next, in this case, words or tokens. So beyond writing a blog or planning an itinerary for a holiday, what is, what's the real use of, of, these, of, of these tools? So ChatGPT, for, an, for the average business or enterprise how can they use specifically chat gpt but other sort of generative ai tools what what is the value for them so natural language processing as a group or natural language generation is kind of a fascinating topic because pretty much anywhere where we use language you could probably introduce these tools to play a role now what specifically that role is might depend on what you're doing but for example in broad strokes The way I like to look at this is you're going to use it for uh, generating text or copy that you then, that's sort of templated and then you you edit. So that's kind of where a lot of people are already. You could use it to summarize things. This starts to get into an interesting area about like the capability of the model. They can summarize text and to great effect, but also there is a level of variation. So you know, within highly regulated industries, maybe you wouldn't want to summarize, for example, or at least you would want to have some sort of um, safety check if you're going to go in t- and, and use it to summarize documents. You can also use it for um, sentiment analysis. So you can build out specific rules within a prompt as part of prompt engineering to provide sentiment analysis, provide levels of classification. Uh, so there's a fair bit of different things you can do with this kind of technology. You can also 
use it as a orchestration engine to trigger other things as well. So give me like a, a practical example. You know, how can a, a bank use it? What's one specific thing that you've seen recently or problem that can be solved? Within banking, I think one of the interesting and this is true than insurance, and I've spent a fair bit of time in insurance, is there's a lot of manual processes. There's still a lot, you know, handlers, people that are involved in claims, for example, or involved in the sales process. And I think what you will see is uh, automating that workflow in different ways will, will be a place where generative AI will help. Take, for example, mortgage application. If it's filled in by hand, you might have like OCR that extracts the text into a digital format. And then from that digital format, you want to summarize it concisely. You might use a generative AI model to do that. Or let's say in the case of a, a claim, or again, going back to mortgage, or even buying insurance for the first time, you might have that interaction, uh, might happen through a chatbot. And behind that chatbot might be a generative AI model. I mean, there's older versions of chatbots which have generative AI models or early versions of those kind of baked into them already. Mm -hmm. um, and you already see that in many of these uh, types of companies. Uh, most people at the stage probably use uh, chatbot. There's a good chance you've used like a smaller version of these large language models before and you just didn't know it. How far off are we from detecting whether we're talking to a, a bot or a human? Like not very far off, I imagine. Oh, <laughs> like it being a convincing or not? Yeah. I think we're already there, to be honest. Um, and there's like a real sort of legitimate concern about, I think they call it like counterfeit people in the sense that you can't really tell the difference. I, I mean, I, I think most people could be fooled by like a, a large language model, chat GPT. Like you wouldn't be able to tell if you're speaking to a real person or not. I mean, this is going down a slightly different road, but potentially has, you know, really important implications for society. Because if you have that and you have like an online sort of presence of, you know, these counterfeit people, they're able to, um, you know, sort of influence people's thinking and preferences, like viewpoints, that type of thing. And that could potentially be quite dangerous. I mean, let's let's talk about the dangers because that's kind of the that is the scary stuff. The robots taking over all of that. Will we need the human brain <laughs> to make decisions in ten years? What are the risks? So I think there's short term risks and there's also longer term kind of uh, existential risks. Short term risks look more kind of akin to this. You know, what is the risk of having actors out there that use these bots to kind of create conversations that aren't real or at least aren't representative of a, of a human uh, or individuals rather. There might be representative of uh, some bad actor in government or elsewhere, whatever it may be. Those are kind of, that's an, an example of the short-term risk. I think also if you look at AI that's come about in the last 10 years, uh, if you look at, I don't want to name companies, but social media in general, there's been a level of concern about it being toxic or it being problematic for youth, for example. I think AI and its form in the last 10 years is kind of represented by social media. That's where we as individuals probably interacted with AI the most. And it's been used to kind of create kind of a false or different narrative than what I think he, people are used to. And some people have benefited greatly from social media. Other people have uh, really been negatively impacted. So I think it's difficult to tell where it's going to go because it's such a new technology. But I think that offers a recent history of how it can go wrong and how we should maybe approach it. I think also like in the short term, so there's obviously the risk of AI LLMs being misused by nation states or larger entities. I think there's also a risk of misuse from 
individuals, you know, in the sense that it's really good, like, like current generation of LLMs are, you know, really impressive, really useful, but they're not perfect. And there's no guarantees that they can produce sort of facts. So at the moment, they're kind of best used as assistants as opposed to purely sort of automating things. And you can get into some problems, like if you are trying to do something with an LLM and you don't have any sort of domain knowledge, it could give you some unexpected or, or bad results. So you sort of need some kind of workflow to sort of mitigate. That, yeah, that's like the everyday uh, usage risk is, you know, if you ask, if I put in my symptoms and say uh, to ChatGPT, please, you know, help me diagnose what I'm going through right now. And you take it as truth and verbatim, you're, you're putting yourself at risk. And I don't think everybody necessarily understands how variable the answers can be from these generative models. And you really don't want to take what it says as truth. So speaking of privacy and data and the data we put into these tools, and we've seen it with social media that there's that exchange. The cost of not being left behind is giving something of yourself. It's giving your data. We sign up to all these tools. We sort of keep up with uh, with modern technology. And yet our data is everywhere and we only have to watch a Black Mirror episode to maybe see the possibilities of where that could take us. What is that balance? What is that exchange? And what do individuals and businesses need to be aware of when they're inputting all this information into one of these tools? So, yeah, I think from a business point of view, you need to understand if your data is maybe going to another third party and you you have to decide if you trust them or not. And you may need to understand, you know, your own policies around data sharing. And if you need to use like a data loss prevention API to mask your data before using it in this capacity, that might be something you need to do, for example. Equally, there's regulations around GDPR. You may need to be able to kind of showcase and monitor uh, the use of these models if you're retraining them, uh, if you're retraining data. So if an individual's data is used as a input, um, something like that would ideally need to be tracked or at least you'd need to be able to work back to it from an audit perspective. I, a lot of businesses are kind of putting these guardrails in place or, or partially have them there. I think it's more about the careful usage and kind of updating it. From a monitoring perspective, if you can implement good data governance and good data lineage, you're in a really good place. It's not the sexiest of topics and often it is more complicated than what it looks like on the surface. And some businesses do kind of struggle with it. But those are the two objectives that you really need, I think. Because as long as you can explain the origins of your actions, generally, you're in a good space. Let's go into to businesses, what are you doing with enterprises at the moment? What are people coming to you with? What questions do they have? What do they want to know? It's usually, I guess, that balance between jumping on a bandwagon and actually solving a problem. What are you seeing at the moment? I mean, the main thing is people want to know how they can use the technology. They're hearing a lot of hype, but they don't know where to start. And to me, that says you really have to understand your problem first. If you don't know what the problem that you're trying to solve is, uh, it's going to be difficult to understand where generative AI actually comes into the mix. It's a bit mad, isn't it? It's a bit like going to um, is it B&Q? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and buying yeah. a hammer and then going home and saying, okay, what can, what can I do with the hammer? Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It is. You know what I mean? It's like That's how with... you end up with a bunch of holes in the wall. Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. But there's some, is, is there not balance to be had in that? And how do you guide companies through knowing what is 
something fun to play around with and see how it can work for you. And don't don't jump the gun here. They should absolutely be experimenting. I think every company uh, should experiment with this technology right now uh, to better understand it and gain some appreciation for what it can do. That said, I think AI investments historically, and, and this is true with any technology, if you take the build and they will come kind of approach, you know, I mean, classically that doesn't work. And I think that's true with AI as well. Uh, the one thing about AI that where it's a little bit prone to this is people get very excited about the what they see in media. And so they're attracted to it, but they don't necessarily, they're not coming at that conversation from the point of view of the problem first. Mm-hmm. Um, so they should go out and experiment with this, but they should also as a part of that experimentation, ask the question, what problem am we, are we trying to solve with this yeah. tool? And I mean, is a LLM the, the right solution? Are there alternatives yeah. that could be, you know, performed just as well or potentially be cheaper on different levels? Yeah, it could be cheaper. Could it, I mean, sometimes it's not machine learning. There's a lot of times as a machine learning expert, you know, we're, we're also there to say, um, this isn't a, a, a good use of machine learning and you're going to invest time and effort and you're going to build up tech debt if you if you take this route or it's or and sometimes it's not feasible people can we've had clients before that are very excited about a certain a very specific machine learning model for a very specific task and we have to tell them look this isn't this isn't feasible and there there are constraints around generative ai models so for example somebody asked me the other day oh we can just build an app for me right and like well no, it doesn't work. It's not like you can just query it. It's not a it's not a genie in a bottle. You know, I think there is kind of the sense that it, people want it to be that, and it certainly is sort of promising in in many respects. But it's not a hundred percent there yet at all. I mean, I, maybe not even fifty percent towards just querying and you build the full app. I want to get more into the business side of it and get into a bit of detail around that specific use cases examples. So often it's not it's not always the fancy cool stuff that makes the biggest savings. And let's talk about the boring side of this, but actually that can bring about long term benefits. There, there's a client we have. I don't know that I want to say what industry it is, but there was we put them on a track for many millions of pounds in savings, and that was a big part of the business case that they developed. Now that specific business case didn't involve generative AI, so it involved traditional AI. And to be honest, a lot of the work that was actually done was less about the machine learning and more about automation, team building, building up proper uh, agile methodology within the team, building up proper software engineering skills. So it was a data science team and they definitely um, built and, and updated models and maintained models, but ML models that is. But in that specific case, that saving was saved just through traditional means and, and more automation. But you can also see, so with generative AI, I think this is, it will offer uh, savings. So for example, if you look at Y Combinator, especially when all of this kind of first started, now this, what I'm going to say is about three months old now, but the their cohort at the time of of startups that were using generative AI Something like 95% of them were sales-based. What I mean is like they were there to help augment the sales process or or some more tedious conversation-based paperworky type process uh, that a lot of companies go through. And I think that kind of shows you the direction of, of it initially, of this technology. It will be there to kind of assist in that. And I think there will be instances of where, yeah, there will be some companies that can save millions on mm-hmm. on that kind of work. 
I think it's so kind of nascent at the moment that it's sort of not well understood, like what the benefits going to be for mm. for companies. Because from my understanding, like to build, you know, like a customized assistant is quite involved, like in terms of what's yeah. required in terms of preparing, you know, data, doing hand labeling. Yeah, it does depend on what we're talking about. Because I think like the, the idea of like the chatbot being there to replace people yeah. is maybe a little bit too far down the road we're yeah. still not quite at that stage yet <laughs> and hopefully people aren't panicking or or curbing their hiring in in reaction to that but natural language processing has been around for many years some of the kind of earliest techniques date back to the 1950s and so we have been thinking about how to apply natural language processing natural language generation for many many decades now the technology is kind of caught up to where a lot of the door is starting to open to a lot more of things but we do have examples of where this kind of technology has been used so like if you look in the case of social media uh sentiment analysis classification of documents uh that classification of documents that you know that comes into the workplace so like uh, looking at your emails and classifying them. So for help desk tickets, for example, maybe you want to classify them based on the text, mm -hmm. based on what the user wrote. Uh, within medicine, for example, the notes from patients has been used to diagnose what they're they're going through, for example. So there's various, those are just two minor uh, examples. But this is just kind of the next iteration of this natural language task that has been going on for quite a while. So I think there is value in, in continuing it. I think it just becomes more effective. It's kind of the compelling part of it. It goes back to the output that, that these models can provide and yeah. that it's, it's I mean, somehow human-like. Sort of open doors to new use cases, hasn't it? And maybe the keyword is you know generative, perhaps like previous generation NLP techniques might be just as good for things like classification, yeah. but in terms of like, uh, you know, text summarization or- Exactly. The, yeah. Those types of things like yeah. we couldn't really do before. Yeah, and I think the summarization part, that one's quite interesting because it is definitely very clear that generative AI models are better at doing that than their older counterparts. But at the same time, like generative AI models, they're better at also sentiment analysis. And that's kind of through research, that's become quite clear. Um, classification, maybe not necessarily, but also you can easily use them and easily build them up to do classification. So it's actually kind of a convenient and somewhat easier way. But to you might you might not want to do that because that could be more expensive. Well, like both, I mean, you know, do computationally prompt, and like prompt engineering for classification. That's something that some people have, can do. I just think that there's probably potentially some applications where you you could do it with generative AI, but maybe there's sort of simpler alternatives. True. Yeah. I guess in the term, it, yeah, it also depends on the output because you could, and, and the model. So like not all generative AI models are equal. So you, you could end up in a case, depending on what you want to use, if you want to go more the open source route, you know, or if you're willing to pay for, for it, you'll get different outputs. Thanks for listening to the Contino podcast. For more information, head to contino.io.